the key here is that it's an informed choice. It's not like, oh, I don't want to work on my weaknesses because I don't want to face my weaknesses or oh, I don't want to work on my weaknesses because that's boring or whatever. It's it's saying, look, there's only so much time. There's only so much effort. And I am consciously making this choice, recognizing that if I'm going to apply effort, the greatest ROI is in putting it here rather than there. I mean, strategy is fundamentally about intentionality. You know, it's not about falling into some choice by happenstance. It's about really evaluating things and taking control in your life, having some agency and saying, you know what? I put my stake in the ground. This is where I'm going to focus. This is Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business. Our guests share the advice, insights, and inspiration to help you transform as a leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently. Having a great idea is one thing. Effectively communicating that great idea or a brilliant contribution is a whole different ballgame. Effective communication, especially in our remote and hybrid world, is a critical skill for leaders to master. This week on Leading Up, I'm thrilled to welcome Dory Clark. She's an internationally recognized author, speaker, marketing strategist. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. She's helped thousands of individuals and companies to stand out and reinvent themselves through effective communication, networking, personal branding. Dory's a professor at the Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, where she teaches marketing and entrepreneurship. She's authored best-selling books, including The Long Game, Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, Stand Out. Dory, I'm thrilled to welcome you to the podcast. Alan, thank you so much. So I'm going to start really high level. You've written a handful of bestsellers. You teach courses here on Udemy. People all over the world seek your advice. What's the story arc that makes all of your research and teaching hang together? The way that I think about it is that we live in a world that ever more so has a cornucopia of choice. I mean, that's that's everything from all of the content and all of the news and all of the information you can get on the internet to just the, the general sense of overwhelm that most people feel these days. You are swimming in a tide of information, and it's really hard to be able, as a result, to stand out. If you are trying as an individual to get noticed, if you're trying to get your company noticed or you're not, your idea noticed, it is challenging because it just gets swallowed up in all the noise. And that's a problem. It's a problem for us because we want to move important things forward. It's also a problem for society because you want the best ideas to advance rather than just whatever happens to be the loudest. So the work that I do in general at a fundamental level is trying to help equip people with the skills so that they understand how to get themselves and their best ideas noticed so that they can make a difference. So let's start. I want to unpack that. But before we get there, I want to start with some of your work in the long game and really thinking about strategy and innovation. Why should someone think and act more strategically? When it comes to strategy, the, the question is why? And for me, it comes down to goals and it comes down to what do you want your life to look like? Because if we 
are sort of like a jellyfish in the ocean, just kind of floating around. Like if you don't have any particular goals, you don't have any particular desires, then you don't need a strategy. But for most people, you do have more intentionality than that. You have hopes, you have aspirations about where you want your career to go, where you want your life to go, where you want to help bring your company toward. So strategy is about getting you to where you want to go. And so you talk about choices and we've heard choices have consequences. And Richard Rummelt says in strategy, it's about making a choice, a way around a problem. And we all want to be great at something. And you've suggested that people should choose to be bad at something. So as I think about, we want to be great at something. What are those things we have to choose to be bad at? Yeah, so this is an insight that I gleaned from the work of of another uh, great friend and academician, uh, Frances Fry and her partner, Anne Morris, who wrote a book uh, about a decade ago called Uncommon Service. And they were talking about service industry businesses and why so few of them actually are great. And the, the reason they discovered is that, you know, I mean, everybody has aspirations of greatness, but the truth is there is only so much time. There's only so much energy. There's only so much budget. And so choices do have to be made. If you fail to make a choice, you are going, by definition, to be average. If you really want to put in the time and effort necessary to be great at something, you can't be great at one thing and then just like, okay, at everything else. Realistically, you have to be great at something and then bad at something because that's where the budget comes from. And because people are so reluctant to choose to be bad at anything, they just sort of revert to the mean of boring averageness. So in practical terms, what this means is we have to make a strategic choice. I mean, obviously you don't want to be bad at something that is truly mission critical, but if you can make a choice and say, you know what, my customers really value this thing. You know, maybe this thing is staying open late and having long, easily accessible hours, but they don't really value this other thing, which is, you know, my bank paying high interest rates. Great. I will take the money that I would have spent on giving out more higher interest rates and I will allocate them to easier hours. And maybe that's not optimal, but realistically, people aren't going to notice or care that much. Yeah, we've talked to a number of people um, on the podcast that come from the positive psychology, positive organizational scholarship. What do you make of like the strengths movement? Would you say that that's a similar concept, working on your strengths rather than focusing on shoring up weaknesses? Well, I think honestly, in a lot of cases, this is just people saying the same thing in different ways. I mean, yeah, of course, focus on your strengths. It's more fun for people to focus on their strengths rather than shoring up weaknesses. I mean, things are usually a weakness for a reason, right? Oh, it doesn't come naturally. It's hard. It's a slog. And so it is slower and less gratifying to make progress in it. All these things are true. It's also true that sometimes there are things that are such weaknesses, no matter how good your strengths are, like, sorry, no one cares, I think it's just, it's unnatural for people to say, I'm willing to admit that, I, that I'm that i going to be bad at something, or I'm willing to admit, like, I'm not going to work on my weaknesses. Because if you look at a lot of performance management, what you're describing is is not the natural mode. And I think that that counterintuitive direction makes a lot of sense and leads to greatness. The key here is that it's an informed choice. It's not like, oh, I don't want to work on my weaknesses because I don't want to face my weaknesses or I don't want to work on my weaknesses because that's boring or whatever. It's saying, 
look, there's only so much time. There's only so much effort. And I am consciously making this choice, recognizing that if I'm going to apply effort, the greatest ROI is in putting it here rather than there. I mean, strategy is fundamentally about intentionality. You know, it's not about falling into some choice by happenstance. It's about really evaluating things and taking control in your life, having some agency and saying, you know what? I put my stake in the ground. This is where I'm going to focus. I love it. So now let's say we've done that. And I work in a culture where, not me, but let's say our listeners, busy executives, they have packed calendars. And you see that trickle down. If I have space in the calendar, does that mean I'm lazy or I'm not working hard? I'd love to hear you talk about how do successful people create the space to do this, to think more strategically? Yes, you're putting your finger, of course, on a really important subject, which I've looked into quite a bit in my book, The Long Game, because if you're going to write a book about strategy, how to be a strategic long-term thinker, you have to deal with the elephant in the room up front, which is, okay, most people say, yeah, 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 that's a great idea, but I can't do it. I don't have time to do it. You know, I mean, that's that's true up to a point because we're all busy, but also at a certain point, if it actually is that important, like, why are you not making time? Like, what's the holdup? What's the hang up here? And so digging into that, I think, is really informative. There was some research a few years back out of Columbia University, Sylvia Baletza and her colleagues did it, about the fact that in many Western cultures, busyness is essentially a proxy for your level of importance. You know, that's how it's perceived. Well, I guess the opposite is true, which is a little bit hard to deal with. So part of the reason why we have so much trouble is that we are oftentimes working at cross purposes to ourselves because we want to be less busy, but then systematically we keep taking actions that never get us out of that hamster wheel. Yeah, I I think about Warren Buffett. I think he says something like 80% of his week, 90 maybe, has no meetings. Yeah. Uh, What do you make of experiments with four-day work weeks, no meeting Fridays, 20% time to innovate? Do any of those things work? Do they help? Any thoughts on that? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I personally am always a fan of innovation when it comes to just, just trying out new ways of doing things. What I like about the idea of experimenting a little bit is, you know, many people are familiar if not with a term, certainly with a concept of what is known as Parkinson's law, which is that work expands to fill the time allocated for it. So, you know, you have, you have four hours to write a report. Okay. It gets done in four hours. You have 40 hours to write a report. Well, suddenly this is a 40 hour endeavor. And so sometimes having less time actually becomes a forcing function that does make you smarter and more efficient in what you do. There's a lot of efficiencies that are kind of hidden, but a deadline sometimes sharpens them. And so experimenting with a four-day work week or other possibilities can be a really useful thought exercise that does, in fact, make us better. I love it. So ultimately, you've got to think a little bit longer term. If you're going to be great at something, you can't be loose with your time. Yeah, exactly. So I think about strategy and innovation together. And so Carl Ulrich is the vice dean of innovation at Wharton and has been on the podcast. And he advised leaders to keep investing in innovation, even in an economic downturn, that it's something that this entrepreneurial thinking and design thinking has to become baked into the culture. So it doesn't matter whether the economy is good or bad or indifferent. And with 
the economic downturn upon us now, this kind of real thing and layoffs on people's minds, I'd love to take that innovation thinking and apply it to the individual. And I'll start like as we kind of shift, how can individuals use entrepreneurial thinking to better take control of their career or their life? Well, one of the ways that I think about this, Alan, is entrepreneurship is essentially a mode of thinking. Whether you work for yourself or not, you know, you can use entrepreneurial thinking as kind of a lens. And it is a lens that is focused on how to operate under conditions of constraint. Let's assume I'm two years out of college to five or six or seven years out of college, and I'm worrying about layoffs. How do I how do I take control of my future and how do I use, if at all, entrepreneurial thinking to help me break out of the shackles of perhaps negative thinking and worry and stress? So, I mean, it is it is a stressful time for sure to see large companies, you know, the ones that certainly during the pandemic, but even for many years before, were considered the quote unquote safest because they're so successful, they're printing money and now there's waves of layoffs. If you work for yourself, if you have taught yourself the skills to always have the ability to gin something up, then you will be able to be successful. You know how to create something out of nothing. That's the essence of entrepreneurship. I have been laid off from a job, my very first job. In fact, I got laid off from, but since 2006, I've worked for myself. Guess what? I haven't, I haven't laid myself off. I've always been able to, uh, to put food on the table because I, I sort of cultivated that skill. Yeah, I love that. And it's it's back to it's like counterintuitive thinking. Um, again, entrepreneurial thinking, these might these things give you agency, which probably helps towards confidence, which helps towards competence. So they all sort of feed on each other if you're not sitting around worried, maybe thinking of it as kind of optimistic thinking versus kind of pessimistic thinking. Yeah, absolutely. There's really something to be said for not feeling like somebody has you over a barrel. The more you can work early on to give yourself even just a little bit of economic margin, the more choices you have. And the more choices you have, it means you can sort of wait for your pitch and look for the moment where, oh, that's a really good opportunity. Oh, that's a really good job offer. And take that rather than just grabbing it the first thing that will fulfill a short-term economic need. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. So you you have another concept, and I'm going to relate it. Daniel Kahneman wrote a great book, won a Nobel Prize, but kind of two modes of thinking. One is mindless, fast, and the other is slow, deliberate, and mindful. And you have a concept of heads up and heads down mode. So he's got two modes of thinking, and you have two modes of executing. And I think they're just like this beautiful pair, and I use them both. So tell us what you mean. What is heads up, heads down mode? Heads up and heads down mode is a concept that 
I first heard about actually when I was researching a previous book of mine called Entrepreneurial You. And I was interviewing a guy named Jared Kleinert, who's an entrepreneur who was, you know, sort of talking about how he did things. And it was such a neat formulation and helpful formulation that I, I decided that I would uh, try to spread the word and adopt it. And the, you know, the basic idea, which I think is really true, is that at a basic level, it is really common for humans if we do something and we either are comfortable doing it or we're getting positive results from doing it, we will keep doing it. And this is certainly logical up to a point. But where things get a little trickier is that at a certain point, you just can't keep doing the same thing forever. Everything in human life is about waves, right? We have circadian rhythms. If we don't recognize the waves, the kind of circadian waves in our business, we will also pay a price. Now's the time to shift. So one phase is heads up. You know, I consider it sort of the active phase. My favorite metaphor is like, you know, your Punxsutawney Phil and you're, you're sticking your neck up in the winter and you're like, Hey, let me look around. Let me see what's going on. Hmm. What's new? What's up? And you're surveying the terrain to see what's interesting. What's happening? Has anything changed? Okay. You're getting ideas. You're taking it all in. But then like our friend Punxsutawney Phil, at a certain point, you need to stick your head down under the ground because that is the heads down mode where you need to execute. If all you ever did was just look around at things, it's like shiny object syndrome. You'd have lots of great ideas, but you're not doing anything. Similarly, there's a danger if all you do is be in heads down mode, you might be going in a straight line. And meanwhile, construction has started and they're putting a skyscraper in and you're going to hit a freaking wall and you don't know it. So you need to stick your head up periodically so you can say, oh, is this still the right move or should I change course? So we need to learn to operate in both modes of heads up and heads down and to toggle between them systematically. So you've been pretty prolific. How do you do it? How do you balance heads up, heads down? Is it like certain number of hours per week? Do you put it in your calendar? Do you carry around a diary and write notes all the time? Or do you read a certain amount? Like, How do you specifically, how did you become so prolific and productive? Oh, thank you. You know, for me personally, and I think it's going to depend on the person, what works for them. I'm, big, I'm a big fan of experimentation. You could think about it in terms of times of day or, you know, on a weekly basis or something. When I am writing a book, for instance, that is a process where it really does need to be heads down. I mean, the book does not get written unless you are sitting in your chair working on your computer. And so during those times, I try to minimize, you know, all the extraneous things. I am generally not going out to events. I'm not meeting with people. If there's sort of discretionary things where someone's like, oh, hey, I want to have a networking call or whatever. I'm like, mm, not now. But when I'm in heads up mode, it's sort of the reverse. I'm like, yeah, I'll take that meeting. Let's do it. But I, I think of it in shifts that are multiple months long, sometimes even up to a year long. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to move to kind of the big idea stuff from standing out. You have some really interesting ideas. So what if I don't have a big idea? How do I figure it out? Are there things that you advise people to do to come up with their thing? This is a challenge for a lot of people. And I've seen it up close because I actually run an online course and community called Recognize Expert, where I 
have seen like hundreds and hundreds of people sort of struggle with this. So how do you figure it out? Well, I mean, frankly, one of my favorite ways to do it is essentially to let the market decide to try to do as much content creation as possible. That could be writing articles, that could be doing podcasts or videos or giving talks or whatever. But the more you're putting ideas out, the more you're giving people and the marketplace an opportunity to essentially vote with their interests. It could just be something as simple as like, okay, I wrote articles about this, this, and this. Article A got 100 views. Article B got 1,000 views. Article C got 10,000 views. Oh, okay, what's different here? Obviously, one time might be a fluke, but if you continue testing it and you see that idea C is like, oh, it always gets a lot of comments and it enables you to, to sort of pivot toward what other people are interested in. So start small, iterate, right? Be, you, you need to be out there with your ideas to figure out what the big idea is and get that feedback from the audience. You also have another concept in building networks that I think that also really resonates with me. No asks for a year. What does that mean? And I'm pivoting to networking because it's kind of the same thing. You say build a network. And we've had many guests on the podcast that have talked about their great rise to success and how important people were. So talk about demystifying network building for us and tell, tell me what, what does no asks for a year mean? There's some interesting research that I cite in The Long Game by a colleague of mine named Francesca Gino. She's a professor at Harvard Business School. And she did research. I just like crack up thinking about this experiment. It basically <laughs> was was uh, taking people's willingness, you know, like how much do they want or how much would they pay for certain items? And after they were primed to think about networking, they wanted to pay so much more money for cleaning products. <laughs> it's like it's like oh you know, get the get the grime off me you know like it's it's really visceral for people yeah but the interesting thing is that for a lot of lower level younger professionals that was especially true and one way to interpret that it's not necessarily that like meeting people is such a horrible thing right it's that the connotation of networking is like oh i need a thing from a person and so if you are higher up in an organization presumably you have some resources to share you know like you probably know some people you can give more in networking because like oh well you're connecting me with someone and so it's in those situations where you feel like you are just a taker, essentially, because you don't know what to give, that people feel stressed out and kind of dirty from all of this. So one thing that's really important to recognize is networking relationships do have to be reciprocal, but they don't have to be reciprocal in kind. In fact, it's often better if it's not, because if you're networking with someone who's like way more senior than you, you're right. They they do have more contacts or more things than you do, but you actually have things that they might not. And it, But you just have to think on it a different way. And along these lines, you mentioned a principle that I laid out in the long game, which I call no asks for a year. And basically what this is, is a way to ensure that, number one, the other person that you're networking with does not think that you are a user. And number two, also to ensure that you are not even thinking about things that would remotely make you a user. So it, it like it keeps everybody honest. And that is that I, I want people to wait at least a year before they ask for any favor from somebody that that involves political capital. I think Thoreau said that we're happiest when we live to serve others or we're happiest when we serve others. And I love the philosophy of servant leadership as well. And and good things happen. 
So we are going to wrap up here and we have a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. What are you curious about and learning now? Well, the thing that I am continuing to learn about and have been working on, this is part of my 10-year plan that I created in 2016, is I have been using my so-called 20% time, which is another concept I talk about in the long game, my spare innovation time to learn to write musical theater. So I am continuing to learn the process of how how to write musicals and how to get a show to Broadway. I love it. You sort of bring together, as you've done with all of your writing, you are the synthesis of all of your research. You're You're walking the walk and talking the talk. Beautiful. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dory. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. And I'll just mention too, if, if anyone wants to go even deeper into strategy, I have a, a free resource at doryclark.com slash the long game. It's a strategic thinking self-assessment they can check out. And it's such a joy to get to talk with you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vickmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard.